Okay, I trust everyone's found 1 Timothy 3. We're just going to read from um, 1 to 7, but we're only going to be preaching uh, on verses 1 and 2 today, and we'll be finishing the rest of it next week. But it's worth reading as a, an entire whole, because it only makes sense in the full context. So in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy it is a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. It's a fine work he desires to do. An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle, peaceable, free from the love of money. He must be one who manages his household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? And not a new convert, so that he will not become conceited and fall into the condemnation incurred by the devil. And he must have a good reputation with those outside the church, so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Sorry, I just broke my... Uh my music stand. Let me fix that. Okay, well welcome again to 1st Timothy chapter 3 and the whole letter. And uh, we're going to begin today with what will be a two-part series on the qualifications of biblical eldership. And I just want to say a few things by way of introduction to get going. Uh, the first is that uh, Paul would have never had written this chapter in the letter if it hadn't been for the crisis that had emerged in Ephesus. Now, you remember the crisis was the presence of false teachers who had arisen amongst them, come up in their ranks, and Timothy had to be sent to Ephesus to deal with this situation. In chapter 1, in verse 3, he was to put a stop uh, to their ministry not only because their doctrines were false and, the, and they weren't proclaiming the truth of the gospel, but they were causing disunity and disruption in the church um, because of the character traits that they possessed. Now, that's important for the context because in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, the qualifications we just read, these are in response to the false teachers who did not possess any of these attributes. And as you read the letter, you'll see that uh, as their dispositions are mentioned by Paul, they're in contrast to what 1 Timothy chapter 3 is asking for in qualified leadership. Uh, Dick Lucas uh, says it this way, uh, my, my, uh, my favorite uh, pastor out of England, he says, he, the way he looks at the list is he says, uh, uh, he's not Paul's not really saying you must have elders like this. He's really saying you must not have elders like that. So he puts a, a flip on that list in the way he views it. But it's the same truth regardless of which way you look at it. Uh, one of the key areas that were creating havoc in, of course, in the church was their teaching on marriage and on women's roles. And if you haven't listened to my two sermons that preceded this chapter, uh, chapters 2, verses 11 through 15 especially, you need to do this. Uh, those sermons will help make sense more of this today in terms of what Paul's doing. Paul is dealing with in chapter 3. But these false teachers, of course, were promoting that it was okay for women to forsake their primary role of having children and raising children and forsaking motherhood. 
and they were promoting the notion that they could be career women, and the career the careers they were trying to hold was the office of leadership in the church. They wanted to be like the senior pastors and take those roles in the church. And Paul basically says, uh, we're going to have none of that, and this is why the office of eldership is restricted to the man, because it's his role to, to uh, provide for the family and to teach the household of God. Again, if you've missed the sermons on that, I explain all this in, in the previous ones. So that's uh, the first thing I want to say by way of introduction. The second one is to discuss the title of overseer. And notice in verse 1 it says, It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. Now this word overseer, um, some of you might have the word elder or something like that in your translations. Don't think that overseer and elders are different things, are different offices. They're just different titles, but they have the same function. It's the same role. And uh, we can see this actually in other places in Scripture. Um, let me just actually share my screen with you. I need to get my PowerPoint up for you to see this. Can you see that okay? The PowerPoint came up? Okay, good. Okay. So, in the office, um, or sorry, in the, uh, the idea of uh, the word overseer or elder or bishop being used interchangeably can be seen in a place in Acts chapter 20. Why I like this verse is that this, this is actually written to the Ephesian church. This is uh, written uh, while they're, going, uh, they're in Ephesus. And uh, this is before the letter of 1 Timothy is written. And look at the, the words that Paul uses. He says, or Luke uses when he writes Acts. He says, From Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. This is in Ephesus. And then verse 28, he says, Be on guard for yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. So again, I love this. Elders, overseers, interchanged in the same text as the same role and function. So that's important, I think, for us to remember. The third thing I want to discuss by way of introduction is what it means by aspiring in verse 1. He says, It's a trustworthy statement if any man aspires to the office of overseer. Now, the way I understand it, aspire, and I've always understood it, it's, it's a reference to one's own personal desire. So if I aspire to the office, I, I have a passion to want to be in that role, and it's, it, the onus is on me and my heart towards wanting to serve in ministry. It was Gordon Fee, um, one of the commentators I read, uh, who's a great scholar, and, a, and a, I, I learn a lot from him in my studies. He suggested another option, the way to look at an aspiration here. He said, the focus is not so much on the person and their passion for the, the role, but on the position. So not the person, but the position. And I'll quote from him what he means by this. He says, Paul is not commending people who have a great desire to become leaders. Rather, he is saying that the position of overseer is such a fine work that it should be the kind of work to which a person might aspire. That's the way he understands this. Now, while I see the possibility in this argument, I'm going to suggest still the first option is the best interpretation. But the aspirations that Paul's talking about is one's personal desire to go into that role, to hold the office of a leader in the church. The reason, not only the context at first reading, I think, would lean that way. Secondly, a further word study on the word aspire puts the emphasis on one's personal passion, on one's heart yearnings, I should say. 
Look at this, and uh, the, the same word occurs two other places in the New Testament, and look at the words. It says here, For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by craving for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. The word craving is the same word aspire. But notice this: the, the person who has a craving for money, a craving for money, that the onus is on the person. The same word occurs in Hebrews 11.16. But, but as it is, he says, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Again, the context here is uh, these are persecuted Christians or people that have been given promises by God, but they've never been received them in this lifetime. And so, um, and they've been persecuted and even martyred for their faith and had a hard life as Christians. And so he says what gave them, they, their faith was strong because they had a better desire for a heavenly country as opposed to this one. So they were able to persevere because this world was not the end all be all. They were waiting for heaven. But again, the desire here is on the person's attributes. Now, this leads to an interesting conversation and a very important one, I think, for us as a church and for Christians in general. Notice what the verse doesn't say. He doesn't say this. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man is called to the office of overseer, it's a fine work he desires to do. (laughs) Okay, why do I say that? Because the word called and calling is thrown around the Christian world like the Chicago Bulls throw around a basketball. And everyone has their, uh, the people frequently ask in in pastoral ministry, so were you called? Tell me about your calling. And I'm not making fun of anyone for this. I mean, um, or or, or making light of this. I mean, uh, but I was asked uh, in one of my interviews, uh, one of the key things the denomination wanted to see from me was, I was to write a two or three page essay on how I knew God called me into ministry. Well, my experience in this church, I don't know about yours, but when you ask different people to define calling or define where they get it from, it's not, it's ambiguous. I've ne- no one's ever biblically walked me through the calling of God and what that looks like. And so what you have is people giving different answers and different experiences to, as to what they think that looks like. Now, I do not deny that God does call people in very strong and specific ways, and he can do that. I'll give you two absolute clear examples. Paul on the road to Damascus is off to murder Christians and throw them in jail and so on. In Acts chapter 9, the Lord appears to him and audibly gives him a voice. And he, sa- and he says, uh, who are you, Lord, when... when, when, when um, Paul's name is called, and he says, I am Jesus who you are persecuting. That's an absolute calling. He heard his voice, and it was a a, a split-instant moment. Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah the prophet's in the temple, and he has a vision of an angel, and he's so broken by the vision that he commits his life fully to the Lord in in ministry service. In fact, after seeing seeing the vision, he's so broken in his own sin. And the Lord says, we need someone to go speak to the people of Israel. And and Isaiah says, here I am, send me. Here I am. So again, God can call people specifically. But that's not the normal experience, church. That is not the normal experience. I don't know many people who have gone into ministry because they've heard God's voice or had a vision. I don't know many. In fact, I don't know any 
personally. I've heard YouTube stories and stuff, but I've never met anyone. Now, there's comfort in understanding this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. That callings like this don't have to be the mandate by which you enter into the office of overseer. If a person has a personal desire to pursue the office of eldership and has come to a place of maturity where they're willing to work towards meeting all the qualifications, the 15 listed here, they're free to pursue it. They'll be free to pursue it. And I think that's a wonderful peace of mind to all these people who are struggling to know if God's called them, as God called them. Listen, if you have a desire to serve the Lord in full-time ministry if you, and to be an elder in the church, then pursue it. And if He gives you the gift of teaching, the spiritual gift of teaching, and you meet the qualifications, then you're well on your way. And I think there's some tremendous fruit in that. So if someone said to me, Andrew, tell me how God called you to ministry, my answer would be, well, to be honest, church, I feel like I'm more of a 1 Timothy 3, verse 1 man. What do you mean by that? Well, I just, I, as, you know, as the Lord shaped my life and circumstances happened, uh, yeah, like I had an aspiration, a personal desire to want to serve Him in more capacity. There's nothing wrong with that answer. And in fact, that is the biblical norm, it would appear, from what Paul says here to Timothy. So anyway, that's worth, I think it's worth saying and worth noting. The last thing I want to point out to you before we get into the qualifications is that uh, there's 15 qualities listed. There's 15 qualities here. There's, there's 20, I think, on your sheet because some of those come from Titus, but the first 15 on your sheet are all from Timothy. Notice here that none of these qualities require a spiritual gift except for teaching. We're going to hear about teaching next week. None of these qualities require spiritual giftedness except teaching. As most commentators properly note, these qualifications are not uniquely Christian. <laughs> They're not uniquely Christian. But they do focus on one's character. On one's character. It's important to note that it's one's character that Paul says is important if one is going to lead the church of God effectively. We need to have a character that is that is uh, was going to meet these standards if we're going to lead the church of God effectively. The very characteristics these false teachers did not possess. And we're going to unfold these more uh, like next week and whatnot as we go into part two as well. So with this, let's refer to the sheet. Um, this sheet you have in front of you is what we use at Genesis House for appointing uh, leadership. When the men come forward in our church to have their names pointed for coming through, you will vote on them according to this. So I, I obviously have identified these people. These men have aspired to the office of overseer at this point in Genesis House. That would be Stuart... Um, Roger and Jeff, they've aspired to this as a personal passion. And so we are now working through the qualifications in their lives to, to meet them. Once we feel they've, we've met them, they will then come forward and then you will identify if you feel they've met these qualifications. And I know, although I know them very well, there is things that, that you may know about them that I don't. And so we want to give the church an open, open um, opportunity to, to speak into their lives as well. But let's um, look at the first one. Uh, you can read it yourself, but the, the person is to be above reproach. Above reproach. Uh, in the Greek, 
The word means to be blameless, to be blameless. Blameless, so you know, is not the same as being faultless <laughs> or uh, not or the same as being sinless. Otherwise, Peter himself would have been disqualified from eldership. Do you remember the time uh, when he uh, was in Galatia and he failed to uh, uphold the teachings of Jesus Christ when he uh, abandoned um, the, the Gentile people when Jew, Jewish um, missionaries showed up. And so he used to have a practice of eating with Gentiles. And when the Jews came, he felt the pressure and he disassociated from them. That was a sin. But later on, we see him writing First and Second Peter at the end, near the end of his life. And so he wasn't discredited from eldership on one sinful act. Okay, so blameless is not the same as being faultless or sinless. It's possible that we can still... Uh, have these issues. However, however, we're not giving a license for fault uh, for, for, for sin either. What we're saying is that there's nothing present in one's life that would warrant accusation or call them into question in terms of character. There's nothing present in one's life that would warrant accusation or call into question one's character. So basically, when one's life is put under a microscope, and examine closely, no moral accusation can be made against them, whether it be inside or outside the church. And this is important. It's the kind of person that can say this, imitate me and my faith and my life. Where do I get this from? Paul. He says, Philippians 3.17, join together in following my example. Brothers and sisters, and just as you have as is a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. Now, what's cool about that is Timothy and Paul are the ones who wrote the letters to the Philippians. He's saying this, follow our example. You can live life the way we live life. And, and uh, you can practice our faith. But I like Hebrews 13.7 even more. In Hebrews 13.7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Consider the outcome of the way of their life and imitate their faith. Why do I like that more? Because people could say, well, of course, Paul and Timothy can say that. They're, they're superhuman. They're, they're, they're super Christians, so to speak. Well, in Hebrews, the author says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Uh, he's not necessarily talking about Paul and Timothy. In fact, we, this is just church leaders in general imitate their faith. So this is beautiful because this goes beyond the quote-unquote super Christian, the super apostle. This is just church leadership in general. So again, this is really important. And so uh, I think the overarching, the overarching principle is to be blameless. And I think the next principle is define more what this blamelessness looks like. And so the first quality is the uh, husband of one wife, and the husband of one wife. And just to uh, help you get in the mood for what uh, the husband of one wife may be entailing, I want to give you just a little musical interlude to give you an idea of which way Paul is heading in terms of direction. So here we go, church. Yeah. 
All right, a one-woman man. Here we go. Prophet, the prophet George Jones. So here we here. What is what does uh what does he mean by a one-woman man, the husband of one wife? Well, four options exist, and George Jones actually has it uh, right. And we're going to come to his conclusion on the fourth on the fourth option. <laughs> At least I believe so. Um, but you can push back if you like. But uh, the four options exist. One, that marriage was a requirement to be an elder. So to be a one, uh, to be the husband of one wife, you have to be married to be in the office of overseer. I would suggest this is not what Paul has in mind. First of all, Paul himself and probably Timothy were not married. <laughs> so it makes no sense that these men are leading churches and church planting and then turn around and say you have to be married to be a church planter or to be an elder. It's inconsistent. Secondly, it would contradict his own teaching in 1 Corinthians 7. In two places, he encourages singleness for the, for the sake of the kingdom. So again, uh, he says too, if, if a man is married, he has divided interests. He can't fully devote himself to time in the Lord, in the, in the Lord's uh, ministry. So again, if it was a requirement, then Paul and Timothy themselves would be uh, discredited and it would be a contradiction to 1 Corinthians 7. The other thing, too, is if a person was widowed um, or a person who had uh, children who left home, they wouldn't be able to be in one either, an I either, because later on it says that they have to be managing their own households. So again, one who was free from children, from one who was free from children, couldn't be an elder either, and that would just not be, that'd be inconsistent. So marriage was a requirement for one to be an elder. I don't think that's what he's saying. Second, it was a prohibition against a second marriage. So you couldn't, um, you, in other words, it was speaking to a widowed person or a divorced person, and divorce would probably be more in mind. So if you're divorced, you're excluded from the option of um, uh, eldership. Um, in the case of divorce, uh, to be honest, uh, remarriage, remarriage was permitted in some circumstances. I did an entire sermon series on God's design for marriage and divorce back in 2018, is one of the first things I taught in Genesis House. And so I'm not going to get into it much, um, but we want to, um, you can listen to those sermons. I think there was three or four on those. But here's the major area in which a, uh, a person could become an elder if they were to be re uh, divorced. It's when the, when the person's a victim of adultery. When a person's a victim of adultery, now, there are those within the church that don't believe this, even in, the even in this circumstance. They think, even if you've been a victim of adultery, you're not allowed. My rebuttal to them is very simple, and it's a biblical one, too. If in the Old Testament you were a victim of adultery, your offending spouse would be stoned. Nowhere did God then expect that that victim had to remain single for the rest of their lives. They'd be a victim in two ways then. First of all, they were cheated on. But secondly, they'd be punished again by God by not being allowed to remarry. That was never what the law commanded. Therefore, in the New Testament, the only reason why an offending party is alive is because of grace and mercy. Because Christ took that punishment on himself and paid the penalty for that. On, like the, the, the sin was dealt with on the cross. He substituted his life. So it would make no sense then that in the Old Testament, the victim was free to marry under the law, 
But then God would punish a victim further by not allowing them to remarry when under grace. It makes no sense. If you're free in the Old Testament, you have to be free in the New Testament when you're the victim of adultery. And of course, we get this teaching from Jesus in, in, in Matthew 19 and places like this. Third, it's, uh, the po- potential is a prohibition against polygamy. Polygamy. Um, again, this is a potential, uh, but polygamy, obviously polygamy, I think, is in mind here. But I don't think that's Paul's main intention here. Because nowhere else does Paul ever teach on polygamy. He, I can't think of anywhere where he teaches on polygamy in any of the New Testament churches in any of his letters. He doesn't speak on it because it's a given. It's a given. Where he spends all his time, however, regardless of what church he's writing to, is on marital faithfulness and fidelity and devotion, which I believe is the, what he's actually driving at, which leads to our fourth option. This is a prohibition against marital unfaithfulness. The key for being a one-woman man or a husband of one wife was fidelity and devotion to one wife. In their culture, infidelity was rampant. There was prostitution, there was adultery, and all sorts of things. So for the elder, it was to be lead an exemplary married life in terms of faithfulness and devotion to his wife. And of course, Jesus rose the bar in this. He said this would included more than the physical act. This was, he says, if you ever look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. So again, this is a man whose heart's pure in devotion as well to his, his wife. Even if the physical actions, um, if we don't see actually someone doing it in the physical action, this is someone who is also devoted in his private, quiet life as well. So free from things like pornography and, um, and things like that is, would be included. All right, so that is the second qualification. Um, the Being above reproach, being blameless, and the husband of one wife. The third one is to be temperate. Some of your translations may say sober-minded. Others may say self-controlled. Uh, the word sober-minded or self-controlled is often used in the Bible in reference to alcohol. In fact, the word temperate means to be wineless. To be wineless. To be sober is to be wineless. Well, we know from the context it can't be a reference to alcohol because in verse 3 he says, not addicted to wine. It'd be redundant teaching to repeat himself here. What, what being uh, sober-minded and self-controlled has to do with is one's emotional stability. One's emotional stability. It's the kind of person who doesn't get emotionally charged when buttons are pushed who doesn't react impulsively when accusations come up or in the midst of disagreements. To say it another way, this person's emotions would be in check. They would sort of be a person who's calm, cool, and collective in the midst of pressure situations. Now, we're not saying an elder is to be free from feeling or not to allowed to have emotions. <laughs> in fact, I think it's important that your, your elders uh, are very sensitive and have a big heart and feel deeply, the key, the key is that the, that doesn't get the best of them, that, that the emotions don't get the best of them, and that they're even keeled. Proverbs 29.11 says, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. <laughs> I think, uh, I'm just going to say uh, what I think in terms of like uh, a person in our church who exemplifies this. 
Even if he wasn't going up for eldership, Stuart is the epitome of someone like this. I mean, you phone the guy, he's got a blood clot in his leg and he's lost his job. When you talk to him, you'd have never known that he was in those circumstances. Never known it. For all you would have known, he could have got a job promotion of $20,000 a year or won the lottery if he played it. You'd never know it. He doesn't get rattled. He's emotionally stable no matter how crazy the circumstances are and, and uh, is able to keep his emotions in check in the midst of disagreements. I've seen it happen over and over in heated Bible studies and all sorts of things we've had. But he's the epitome, I think, of, of temperate, even-keeled, and uh, very calm. The fourth quality here is prudent. Um, you can read it on the sheet. I think I don't have it in front of me. Um, ironically, I forgot to print it for myself. But it has to do with living wisely, being objective and living wisely. So one's objective and how they approach life. It's the kind of person when it comes to making decisions or making choices or solving problems, they're sensible. They use good judgment and they're practical in the way they accomplish things. They're not given to rash actions. Uh, they're not the kind of person that shoots from the hip uh, quickly and regrets their decisions later. They proceed with caution. Now, I believe uh, there are two important attributes in living wisely. One would be delayed gratification, and the other one would be the need for recognition. <laughs> Let's talk about delayed gratification for a second. Uh, it's the ability to not have everything now. It's, it's wanting something, but being able to say no. And a lot of times that gets us out of jams because we don't put ourselves in, 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 in situations that we then regret. Part of wisdom, living wisely, is being able to delay gratification. Proverbs 13.12 says it this way, Hope deferred. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled is a tree of life. Isn't that true? Sometimes when you, when, you, when you defer what you want, don't you feel kind of like rotten inside? Because you, you think you need it so bad and it makes you feel down and like you're losing out. Hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a longing fulfilled, like something you've desired, that you put off, is a tree of life. An elder who lives wisely does not live for instant gratification. Also, the need for recognition their need for recognition. The master of this was Paul, the master. In Galatians 6, it says there, the Jews wanted to impress others by their adherence to the law to avoid persecution and to keep face. Paul says this, I'll let all that go. I don't need to worry about persecution. I don't need to uh, impress others. I will only boast in the cross of Christ. The rec all the recognition he needed was what the Lord thought of him. He didn't need recognition from others in order to do his ministry. If you want to pursue the ministry and the office of eldership, it's the worst place to go if you want recognition. If you want recognition, don't sign up for ministry. Can you get recognition at times? Sure you can. But you receive a lot of rejection and a lot of people's hurts and anger. If you're not um, prepared... If you're not prepared for that, you will never survive the ministry. Again, we have to be prudent. We have to live wisely. And making 
putting our hopes and our boasting in the cross of Christ is the only way to survive the office of overseer. The fifth quality is to be respectable, to have good behavior, or to have good behavior, depending on your translation. Interestingly, uh, we looked at this earlier, the Greek word for respectable is well-ordered. Well-ordered. It occurred in 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 9. I'll read that to you. It says, Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Proper clothing, the word proper is the word respectable. So, he makes a contrast between proper clothing, in terms of what that would look like, to behavior being like proper clothing. So this is, pro- this is behavior then that's orderly, it's modest, it's modest, and merits respect from others, both inside and outside the church. It's the kind of person who's the same inside the church and outside the church. There's consistent conduct, whether you catch them in, on a Sunday morning or you catch them out in the public eye on the baseball field. To be well-ordered, though, and, and to be uh, proper in the way you conduct yourself, you have to fulfill the duties and responsibilities of your life that are given to you. You have to be reliable. You have to have your act together, meet deadlines, uh, keep the promises you make. The ministry is a place where there are many tasks and many things required to get the job done that can pull you in different directions. It's no place for a man whose life is full of chaos. And finally, I'm going to finish with this one. Hospitable. Hospitable. That's one of the key attributes of a person in office of an overseer. He's a person who's kind and welcoming to those within the church, as well as strangers. As well as strangers. So this goes beyond one's personal circle. Now this makes sense as asked of an, of an elder, because it's asked even of widows. It's asked even of widows. When widows were to be, in terms of putting put on the list um, in, in chapter 5. So again, in, the, in their context, uh, a lot of um, uh, the women there had been widowed and had been left alone because their spouses had died. And they had uh, so many, they had to decide who can the church take care of and, who, and who, who shouldn't they. So they devised a list to make sure they knew what merited the, the church provisions and which ones didn't. One of the key attributes for being put on the list was to be practiced hospitality in their lifetime. They were known for opening up their homes and providing for people. So it makes sense if it was required to be put on a widow's list, it would be definitely required of church leadership. Secondly, it's required of all believers. These are really important passages, church, here. Look at these in Romans 12, 13. When God's people are in need... Be ready to help them. Always be eager to practice hospitality. There's an eagerness to look to do this. Hebrews 13.2, don't forget to show hospitality to strangers. For some who have done this have already entertained angels without even realizing it. I can't prove it, but I wonder if that's actually a reference to Abraham. Remember Abraham, when these, these men showed up to his house, and they were, they were, they were actually angels, and Abraham brought them into his home, and um, this was just before they destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, but he opened up his house to them. So interesting, it's required of eldership because it's even required of all believers and, and to be put on a widow's list. Now, for fun, I'd encourage you to read John, 3 John, 
3 John, the first opening verses, there's a contrast between two men there. There's a, a guy named Gaius and a, nine a guy named Diotrephes. Now, Gaius is praised in the opening verses for being hospitable. And he gets extra mention in regards to his provisionary care for those who were traveling missionaries. So not only was he hospitable within his church and, and in the community, he was actually went the extra measure to take in those who were traveling through his town to provide for them so they didn't have to pay for things like hotels and food and so on. Diotrephes, on the other hand, is reprimanded for his actions. In verse 10, I quote it, it says, He does not receive the brethren and forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. <laughs> so if you were serving under this, or in this guy's, uh, under this guy's leadership, uh, he wouldn't receive traveling missionaries in his home. And if you were to do so, he would threaten you and even kick you out of the church for doing so. I don't know what was up with this guy, but the, John talks about that when he comes to see them, he's going to talk to this guy face to face. So again, it was really important for hospitality in the early church, and it's important for us as well, if you want to take up the office and aspire to leadership. Now, why is it so important? Why? Well, it's not just for provisionary care, even though that's a, that's a major attribute. Number one, and these, what's really cool is these are all in the scriptures. You can see it happening. One, it's a place, of a, where, place where evangelism takes place. It's a place where evangelism takes place. Remember in Luke chapter 5, Jesus, and Le Jesus calls Levi to be a disciple. It says, Levi left everything, and then he opened up his home and threw a great banquet. <laughs> and guess who came to the banquet? A large crowd of tax collectors and sinners who were eating with them. And what is Jesus' response when he gets rebuked for bringing those people uh, having eating with those people in Levi's house, he says, It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Hospitality was a place for evangelism. That was Jesus' heartbeat in his ministry. That's why we open up the homes. If you want to be a leader, aspire uh, as a, into office of eldership, you be prepared to open up your home for the purpose of evangelism. Second, it was a place for te to teach the Word of God and to do discipleship. Remember Luke chapter 10? Mary and Martha are, are, are in their house. And um, they asked, Jesus comes over, and he comes over for a meal, and probably to sleep over that night uh, along with the disciples. Martha's in the kitchen, and Mary is doing what? She's at his feet learning from him. Her sister Martha was busy doing all the preparations in the kitchen and Mary sitting at the feet of Christ and being taught. It's a place for discipleship and to learn the Word of God. And finally, it's a place where we can gather together to encourage one another and praise the Lord for the things He's doing in our lives. In the early church, this was a normal practice. Um, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in their homes. See that? <laughs> they met together in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts and praising God. That's what they were doing in the early church. Those who seek to aspire to the office of overseer need to be generous and welcoming people 
who seek to take care of others' needs and not to be seen as untouchable but touchable people. There are no boundaries to be put up, no spirit of elitism because you're in this position of leadership. It's the opposite. It's the absolute opposite. The people have to see you as touchable and not untouchable. Jesus was the absolute perfect model of this. Hospitality is key, church. So let's finish with the lessons. I was tempted just to repeat the lessons as being um, the, the six attributes we talked about and just summarizing them, but that, I think that's redundant. I tried to do something a little bit different with the lessons, although it wouldn't be a bad idea to do so and summarize them quickly. But I think that sheet you have does a really good job of defining those characteristics for you. But let me give you the lessons I think are important for today's message. So the first lesson is this. It's not necessary for one to have a definitive calling to eldership. One's aspirations are enough. I'll say it again and again. I can repeat them to you if you don't get them later, but it's not necessary for one to have a definitive calling to, to the office of being an overseer or to eldership. Aspiring to the position is enough. Now, that's an important lesson, I think, guys and girls. <laughs> um, again, can God call you specifically and, and make a, de a definitive calling in your life? Like, sure. I mean, Paul, Isaiah, this happens all at, at, you know, at certain times. But I don't think it has to be the norm in order for you to, to, um, to move into this kind of position and to pursue it. Um, obviously, aspiring to the position from Paul's uh, perspective was, was, was key. <laughs> The, of course, the qualifying statement on that is that you must meet the qualifications, the 15 qualifications listed. So again, um, but that can be a process and a, and a work in time. The second lesson is that the only qualification for eldership that requires a spiritual gift is teaching. The only qualification for eldership that requires a spiritual gift is teaching. The rest focus on a man's character. The only qualification for eldership that requires a spiritual gift is teaching. The rest focus on a man's character. This is why, so getting to the teaching qualification, this is why at Genesis House we have the guys get up front and, and do sermons once in a while. We do this because it's one of the aspects of, of being an, an elder. It's important that they do this. Um, I, uh, I don't agree when people are put in eldership when they haven't been given teaching opportunities because it's, the, it's one of the key attributes to being an elder. And again, if we can't trust people in the way they handle the Word of God, then we won't trust them to take their counsel. So if, 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 if the overseer is to, is to shepherd the people and to lead the people, if people don't know their understanding of the Scriptures or how they handle the Word, they're not going to trust them in their homes to take counsel from them. So teaching is a, is a mandatory thing to have out there. At the same time, though, it is a spiritual gift. The rest of the qualifications focus on character. The whole, fo the whole focus is on that. Again, because being a leader is a moral issue. <laughs> a moral issue. And we want to lead by example and have a character that reflects, that reflects our relationship with Jesus Christ and His qualities. It's interesting. Um, the whole message, of course, is about Christ. If we want to point to Him, we need to live like Him and show the church 
a living example of what he might have been look might have been like. And we show the church that maturity is possible. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says this, uh, Now these are the gifts Christ gave to the church, the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do his work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such a unity in our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the standard of Christ. So again, the leaders first have to show this, the mature, their maturity in the Lord and reflect his character before they help others in theirs. And finally, the third lesson. A strong indicator that one is ready to be an elder is when they can say, imitate my faith. <laughs> A strong indicator when one is ready to lead the church is when they can say, imitate my faith. Again, we're not saying this person is faultless in their leadership or won't make mistakes. But it, it has to do with how they handle those mistakes and how they handle those situations. But at the same time, uh, really, it, it has to do with what they're known for. What is their practice in life? And what, what is their, their general uh, characters as a person? So again, it's not being faultless, but it's basically having a track record where they're consistent and they're a consistent model inside and outside the church.